All right. Good afternoon. Welcome to yet another edition of Celtics Beat. It's Larry H. Russell here with, well, Larry H. Russell. I will be going solo today, but not for too long. We have two phenomenal guests. Two returning guests, Ian Eagle, voice of the Brooklyn Nets for the Yes Network, also does his college basketball, the NFL on CBS, and many other endeavors. We'll be here to talk with him about the NBA, obviously the many situations, situations, plural, remember that, going down in Brooklyn, Pierce, Garnett, what's going on with them? Well, we know Pierce left the team, Garnett, is he coming back? Sounds like he is, but is this definite? And many other, I love talking with Ian, and of course, Jeff Goodman, who Many in the Celtics blogosphere have been attacking recently over Raj, comments he's made about Rajon Rondo. If you've been listening to Celtics Speed, we had Jeff on the show back in December of 2013. said the exact same thing about Rondo as he did recently in these weeks, so we'll talk to him about that. But once again, so much news here in the NBA. LeBron James, we all know about this, going back to Cleveland. First things first, I think there's been some discussion recently of whether or not Cleveland's this elite team, although it'd be very good. Uh, our memory is a little short. Do we forget that LeBron James played with 11 other guys named Fred on the Cleveland Cavaliers six, seven years ago and had them winning 60 games, taking them to the finals? Do we, do we forget that? We got on for not winning a championship because Delonte West was the second-best player. Cleveland's all set. As of now, they are the favorites in the East. If they get Kevin Love, I hate to be this. sounds so arrogant, but you could pretty much book the next three championships for them, at least two. LeBron James is one of the best players of all time, and he has a chance of being the best basketball player in history. Maybe not as good as Russell. I'm one of those guys that has Russell in front of Jordan. I think he's one of those guys automatically, wherever he is, that team is a championship contender no matter who he's got on the team. But he's got actually got a very good team around him. He's got Kyrie Irving, and he's got some other pieces that could help, Tristan Thompson. Andrew Wiggins, we don't know. Wild card, he shouldn't be a complete scrub. He should contribute. And if they do get Kevin Love, also signs point to them getting Love. That's going to be pretty tough to compete with in the Eastern Conference. But Cleveland, right there, they are the team to beat in the East. Well, LeBron James is is the guy to beat because he's LeBron James. And the East, I think, believe it or not, is stepping even further back. I know you have Washington here on the rise Washington is a good team. They have a chance to be a solid team, 50-something wins. They cannot compete with LeBron on his own. So I think you have Washington. They're all right. Indiana, they, I think, they've took a big step back. Brooklyn, I think, took a step back. We'll talk with Ian about that. And then who else? Toronto, nice team. I think they could get a little better. They sort of reminded me of the Kings about 12 years ago when they had Vlade and Weber, and they ended up getting Mike Bibby. But they're not going to be that good. They won't be as good as, say, Sacramento was. And after that, am I drawing a blank? Miami, I know they signed the wall, dang. No, forget about it. Dwayne Wade, I think he's done. He's done. Chris Bosh, nice player. Miami's got 45, 47 wins written all over with. Chicago, I know, is a wild card with Derrick Rose. I actually don't think they're a wild card. I think they're a classic good regular season team. Tom Thibodeau reminds me so much of, say, like Pat Burns in hockey or, or Mike Keenan, where he just burns guys out and they just blast through the regular season. But they got nothing come postseason. And Derrick Rose, maybe I'm a little pessimistic. I don't think we'll ever see that Derrick Rose again. I just think when you have guys that start missing multiple seasons, guys like Grant Hill, Anthony Hardaway, elite players, when they start missing multiple seasons, it's 
very rare they return to form. So I think without an elite top three to five player in the league, which is what Derrick Rose was in 2011, Chicago is just sort of this pesky team that can be very that can be solid in the regular season. But I think they just run out of gas come the first or second round of the postseason. So Cleveland, LeBron James, they're the team to beat. Where are the Celtics? Where are they in all this? No fireworks this summer. It doesn't look that way. I don't think we're going to be seeing Kevin Love coming here, unfortunately. Big news, I guess if you want to call it that, Evan Turner, he signs. My thoughts on Evan Turner. I said it back in March when we were talking to Quinn Buckner when the Pacers just traded for Turner. Not a fan. Uh, This is another Jeff Green. He's one of these players that can do a few things solid, okay, has no really defining quality of his game, which I just don't think works too well in the NBA. So what is that going to give the Celtics? I know Danny Ainge did it to maybe pick up another asset. He did it because it's a low-risk, high-reward type of move. But I, first off, I think there is some risk in it. The team has too many guards. And I want to see the Celtics team get better this season. I don't want to see another tank season, people. I do not want to see another 25-win, 20-win season and fans openly rooting against this team in January, hoping that the next big thing in the draft is going to come to Boston and save this franchise and hang banners up above the Garden Parquet five to seven years from now. This team needs to make strides because the players need to make strides because if the players make strides, then Danny Ainge can package these players and then get that player out of free agency or in the trade market who can get this team back to where the fans really want to see. But this whole nonsense of, well, hopefully they sneak again and they get another draft pick, that really cannot be the direction that they're going in. So does Evan Turner make this team better? I don't think he does. I think he actually makes them worse, as odd as that sounds, because it creates this big congestion at the guard spot. I want to see this team with a solid rotation. I want to see Brad Stevens grow as a coach. I want to see him grow as a coach. He needs to coach and if you're just sort of just throwing him an out of control roster where there's really no set roles and saying here take all these guys and see what you can do with them I think that's just a recipe for disaster by December you're going to have players bitching for playing time on a terrible team so I don't like this Turner signing it doesn't really accomplish anything they picked up Marcus Thornton in the trade I know that's just sort of just to get another asset, but he's still a player who's going to be making a lot of money next year. He's got owed $8 million, so he's got in his head like, hey, I'm owed $8 million. I'm a good player. I deserve to play 20, 25 minutes a game. He's not going to get that. This happened a few years ago, if you recall, that the 2013 season. This team had too many guards, and that was on a good team. And you had Leandro Barbosa going down to Brazil and complaining to Brazil newspapers that I want out of Boston, and he ended up backtracking off those statements when he was asked to sort of clarify them into the U.S. media. But he did openly complain to Brazil media that he wanted out of Boston, and there were just there was just too much. And now, here it is again. I think you're going to see the same thing. How is a guy like Avery Bradley going to de- continue to develop? He's only 23 years old. Marcus Smart, they just spent the number six overall draft choice on him. There's too much congestion at the guard spot, just like there was last year at the four spot. So I don't really like this Turner move. In fact, I, I, I hate the, the Turner tr- the move. It really doesn't really do anything. I know it didn't cost the Celtics much money, but so what? It's going to cost them in the season. He's not going to accomplish anything. He was atrocious for Indiana last year. He is a classic, decent player on a bad team. He can stuff stats on a 15-win Philadelphia team. But when you ask him to, to play a role, he can't provide anything. He's a guard that can't shoot. 
That's we're we're in the NBA right now, where teams want quote unquote stretch fours. They want six eleven, six ten power forwards shooting three pointers. Evan Turner has no range beyond eighteen feet. So that's just going to completely ruin spacing when you have Rondo, you have Turner, you have Smart. Bradley is a good shooter, not off the dribble. You have a a backcourt that can't shoot. So this is a huge issue in itself. I think I'm over – maybe I am overreacting. It's just their partial mid-level exception. They really weren't going to get anybody else. But I just want to see this team take this season a little more seriously. I want to see this team competing, and I think – Ainge sort of threw a monkey, you know, a wrench here into this by just throwing a player that doesn't fit on this team. And we still have, there's still no rim protector on the Celtics, which is what they need. Now, was that, was there a possibility out there? Sort of. Omar Ashik, he's on his way to New Orleans. Could the Celtics have gotten a deal done there? I guess not. What, what else is there? I know there's still talk about Greg Monroe. I don't think he fits the bill. He's another player that doesn't really fit this team. But... It'll be interesting going forward. Uh, call me pessimistic. 25-win season coming up, and this is a 25-win season I don't think fans really want to see. This team needs to make strides next year. Brad Stevens needs to grow as a coach because when once you start piling bad season after bad season, the culture and the positive feelings, it starts to just sort of just accumulate. It's an avalanche, and then before you know it, you're going to have fans calling for Brad Stevens' head. You don't want that. This team is committed to Stevens, and this team is committed to a re- this franchise is committed to a rebuilding program. But they need to make strides this year, and with the off season they've had so far, really hasn't happened. As odd as it sounds, the Celtics, while they haven't had the best off season, I don't think they've had the worst off season. There's a team, so two hundred something miles south of us. I, it, big difference. From, compared to last year, there was a ton of optimism with this team, and it was a team that Celtics fans cared a lot about. It was the Brooklyn Nets. They just picked up Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett oh, 13 months ago around this time. A lot has happened down there in Brooklyn. And I know some Celtics fans are just, they, they, they got the Tiger Woods fist pump going. They said, okay, oh, so those draft picks, baby. And that's pretty much the only thing that Celtics and their fans have going for them are, say, the, these Brooklyn draft picks coming up. Possibly they could be good. I Think, I still say Brooklyn's going to win 45 games. They, they'll have their core in place. They still have Brooke Lopez coming back from an injury, although he's you know it's not definite. They still have a very good team. Well, not very good. They'll be they'll they'll be in the mix. So not a good off season for the Celtics. Not a good off season for the Miami Heat. Not a good off season for the Indiana Pacers and many other teams. I'm not sure Brooklyn had the best off season. So we're going to talk with Ian Eagle, voice of the Brooklyn Nets. Can't wait to talk to him, and I believe he's on the line right now. So let's get right to this. Well, I would like to welcome back Ian Eagle back to the show, voice of the Brooklyn Nets for the Yes Network, also a man of many endeavors over at CBS Sports. First things first, and i got to congratulate you, uh, number two team at CBS uh, this year with Dan Fouts with the NFL and CBS. Yeah, LHR, thank you. Very excited about it. Uh, looking forward to the season. This is always a a really good time in the NFL because as you hit training camp, there's this one word that that really stands out, and it's hope around the league. Uh, I think fans just feel like uh, their respective teams can turn the corner with uh, new players and draft picks. And uh, there's one thing about the NFL that's so different than the other sports, and that is 
every fan base believes before the season starts that they could be the team that goes worst to first. And I find that uh, that excitement carries over to Sundays, especially early in the season. Yeah, it's certainly a big difference from the NBA, right? I mean, going in the NFL season, uh, I mean, unless you're a fan of pretty much the Cleveland Browns or one of these teams, it seems like, what, 28 or 30 whatever teams have hope, whereas opposed to in the NBA, every season it's, what, about five teams or pretty much wherever LeBron James goes, right? It's where LeBron James is and the San Antonio Spurs and the Thunder and everyone else is pretty much an also-ran. Yeah, it's rare that you're surprised in the NBA. Obviously, there are uh, examples that we see year in and year out, a team that will overachieve Toronto this past year, a team that not many people thought could be a factor, and all of a sudden the team just gelled. The chemistry was there. They were able to uh, follow Dwayne Casey's leadership and really came together, and that was a fun series. The Nets-Raptors series in the first round, one of the best series in the NBA. The NBA playoffs were, were tremendous, and don't get me wrong, what the NBA, Larry, has now done which has been ingenious, whether this was a conscious effort, whether it's just been organic in the way that it's developed. But they're a 12-month-a-year sport now. The way that things line up on the schedule, the playoffs, into the draft, into the free agent signing period, the NBA has gotten so much traction and mileage out of being in – the public eye and being the focus more so than I can ever remember. And I've been doing NBA games now for 20 years. So it shows you that uh, the NBA has been very smart in how they time things, how they handle themselves via social media has been important as well. So I think they've capitalized. They've capitalized on uh, the fact that uh, you don't have to just be a seasonal sport anymore. The NBA has has really figured out how to stay uh, relevant over the course of 365 days. It's funny that you mentioned that. I believe the last time I was on this show, I said the exact same thing. I mean, it's just pretty much outside of maybe a five-week stretch. I think right as the, I think they released the schedule, I think it's like the last week of July, first week of August. That's pretty much, once they do that, then the NBA sort of goes out of the public eye for about four or five weeks. But once these teams start training camp and you have all these teams, I, I don't know who's going overseas this year, but there's always one or two teams that go to Europe, they go to Asia. Outside of that little five-week lull in August, it's incredible that, that the interest there is in the NBA. And I'd even make that the, the argument that there's more interest in the NBA from starting right at the conference finals up until when the schedule was released. Um, so July, let's call it July 31st as just an obligatory date. So right around the conference final till the schedule's released, there's far more interest in the NBA then than there is when they're actually playing games in sort of the, 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 you know, the doldrums of the season, like in February and March or end of January. It, 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 you're right. It's the amount it's, – it's incredible how, how much we can talk about the NBA and how much people actually listen and care about the NBA during these months, where as opposed to in the NFL, the Super Bowl comes and goes – I think well, they move the Pro Bowl back. But once the Super Bowl is done, that's it. The NFL goes away for the draft. Everybody cares for a week, and then it goes away again, and then training camp, and then, you know, it's, you know, balls to the wall there. But the NFL is out of the public eye for more than half the calendar year. The NBA is all over the place outside of a little five-week lull in August. And throw the Summer League into that as well, Larry, because this year I got sucked in. 
I, I found myself watching more summer league games this year than any year that I can recall, whether it was based on the fact that the draft had so much intrigue, uh, based on the fact that there's so much movement and the shift within the league, LeBron James waiting on his decision, but curious about the young players. The NBA Summer League, it, it had an impact this year. It wasn't just, a, oh, yeah, well, what are they, just playing some games out in Vegas? Ah, I'll, I'll check in on it. I'll, I'll check a website every now and again. I was sitting back and watching games, uh, and not just here and there, consistently, back-to-back, three in a row, tape delay from the day before. Uh, that, that just shows you that the, the consciousness is, is at a height. That, that we just haven't seen before. So give credit to the league. They've always been masters in marketing. That, that's been the case going back to uh, the Magic and Bird era into the Jordan era. But they've, they've really capitalized. They've capitalized on the new media, and uh, they're doing it right. And it just shows you that uh, if, if the product is good, which I think the NBA is, it's finally gotten to the point now where for years uh, I, w- I was dealing with this, doing both play-by-play on college basketball and NBA, I would constantly hear from, from people, and now we're going about you know, four, five, six years, uh, oh, man, I, I, I'm not an NBA guy. I love college hoops. And I'd say, well, wait a second. Why? Well, I'm a purist. So, okay, what's your point? Well, I, the college game is the way it's supposed to be played. So, well, hold up. I'm not going to tell you that the college game isn't great. I, I love doing college basketball, the raucous atmosphere, uh, the fact that uh, you've got kids out there. It means so much to them. For most of these competitors, it's the highest level they're ever going to play. So that means there's so much on the line, especially when you get to the NCAA tournament. But don't give me this blanket statement that college basketball is the pure form of basketball. Those days are done. If you're a true basketball fan and you don't see the upside of the NBA and when you've got two teams in the postseason uh, playing their hearts out and you can't see what that truly is, then you're not being honest with yourself anymore. You're, you're caught in, in some uh, backwards mentality that, that used to exist among sports fans. And now I think you are starting to, to see that that change in uh, most sports fans that that acknowledge that the NBA is really top-notch. No, I'd actually agree with you 100% there. I thought there was kind of a pretty big downtime for the NBA. I'm talking pretty much the middle of the decade. I thought that the talent pool was a little diluted. Uh, The players at the league were sort of marketing and selling really weren't as good as – they were. I mean, I'm talking like the Allen Iversons. I just, I mean, I don't want to get a huge debate over him, but no, I, I don't think he was, right. as, he wasn't, he's not, a, he's not a pantheon all-time great player. Whereas you have LeBron James and Kevin Durant. I think LeBron James is already there. Kevin Durant is on his way. And then you still even got a guy, you know, Tim Duncan, who's uh, t- going to be a top 10 player of all time, who's still kind of hanging around. But I, the, the product now is a trillion times better than what it was 10 years ago, eight, nine years ago. And I think it is as good as it was since pretty much the Jordan days or even maybe even the early Jordan days in the early 90s. Yeah, I think the Iverson example that you threw out, the, 
the thing that strikes me and resonates with me on that, Allen Iverson was highly respected by his peers. Uh, there, there was almost a hero worship going on uh, based on not just what he did on the court, but his background, where he came from. I, I just think that amongst NBA players of that era and of a certain age, they saw him and put him on a pedestal. That's not to say that the league should have been doing the same or that the fans felt the same way. Incredible player. If you physically looked at what he brought to the table, it's amazing that he did what he did over the course of his NBA career. But with all of that said, you normally want to want to market the players that win, the players that can consider themselves champions. Your best players should also be your your best leaders and the ones that players follow. And I think that's where things got a little mixed up within the NBA looking back on that time. And now we're back to that. LeBron James, obviously. Uh, anybody that saw Kevin Durant's MVP speech walked away saying, wow, this guy is, uh, is, is a pretty special individual, and there's a reason why he's had the success that he's had. Uh, I think that's where the league is at now. And, uh, yeah, it is cyclical, Larry. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you, you make do with what you've got. This is a really good time for this league. And the talent level is, if, if you don't want to say it's at an all-time high, it's right there. Uh, there are some excellent players that are 12th and 13th men in this league right now. That shows you that it's, it's amped up. Well, let's get to uh, one of those great players who seems to be on his way out. I think you know where we're going here. Uh, Kevin Garnett to be back. I think I would have to – my guess is this is going to be his last year. It's his last year of his contract. When we last talked to you back, uh, I think it was the beginning of April, you seemed pretty skeptical that he was going to come back, uh, or whether or not. So what's, uh, what's the deal with KG here? Yeah, I mean, as we know, circumstances change. And uh, with Kevin Garnett uh, trying to read the tea leaves during the season, there was frustration. He missed so many games, physically could not bring it uh, like he's accustomed to. The lift isn't there, the explosive nature that we grew accustomed to when, when he was in his heyday. It's just not there anymore. It's not part of the equation. He's owed $12 million. Uh, it's a player option. Uh, the Nets knew what they were getting into when they made this deal. They wanted the leadership. Uh, they wanted the presence that he brought to the team. And uh, the, the fact that he's a high-profile guy, to them, that was a plus in Brooklyn. Everybody assumed it would be you know, a two- to three-year process with Garnett and with Pierce, and with Kidd, and seeing what this team was capable of doing. And it didn't, didn't happen. Uh, decisions were made. They looked at the finances. Uh, they looked at the risk-reward. And obviously we know that uh, some stuff happened behind the scenes with Jason Kidd that eventually led him to Milwaukee. And the plan has changed. So not only are you judged in this league by uh, how you execute whatever plan it is you have in mind as a general manager, as an owner, as a decision maker, you're also judged by what your plan B is. And the Nets' plan B has been to get a bit younger and to try to make the transition that they're making while also maintaining some kind of competitive balance. My sense is that Kevin Garnett 
still feels like he has something to offer. And while the season has ended and you go back and you recover physically, mentally, you start going through the checklist of can I do this? Do I want to do this? Does it fit my lifestyle right now? And it looks like KG has gone through that checklist and has decided that uh, he wants to to play out the contract and, and go for one more year. Uh, the Nets and Kevin Garnett, this could be just the start of a long-term relationship. Kevin's got a lot of interests outside of just playing basketball, as we know. And I think he saw Brooklyn as an opportunity to try to – capitalized on on a number of those interests so larry when the smoke clears i wouldn't be surprised if kevin garnett has some kind of role moving forward beyond his basketball playing years uh, whether it's within the nets organization whether it's with uh, ownership whether it's within the marketing aspect of this team whether it's just within brooklyn uh, that that could be something to keep an eye on down the road, that Kevin sees a bigger picture here than just playing one more year for the Nets. It's very interesting that you said that because I've always been under the impression that, that when Garnett retires, I felt like he would just run off to Southern California or, and just live in the mountains up there somewhere and just we never hear from him again because if you remember back when the Celtics played Chicago, um, in that they had a great first-round playoff series, the, but Garnett was out for the year, or he was out for that series, ended up being out for the year, and he couldn't be on the bench because he would just literally go insane. Uh, he, he, would just, he couldn't contain himself being around basketball but yet not being able to play. So it would be very interesting to see Garnett you know, around the NBA yet without being able to contribute to a team directly with wins and losses. Yeah, you know, Larry, he is a he's a tough guy to read. Uh, he, he's an enigma in many ways uh, based on the fact that he gives so much of himself and has given so much of himself. But you're right, he's incapable of handling that just sitting there in civilian clothing. Even uh, I got a brief taste of it this past year during that, that stretch where he was injured. You know, Kevin wasn't on the bench. Kevin was around. Pre-game, you might see him if you were around the locker room. You might see him walk down the hallway. But then that was it. It was it was like smoke at the end of the game. You'd look around and say, is he here? Has he just faded away into the background, into the ether? So my feeling is no, not from a coaching standpoint. That would shock me, something like that. I just don't see he, – he just takes every possession so seriously and uh, it, it would drive him nuts. But I do think he's got a bigger picture in mind, whether it's the brand, whether it's the global aspect. Uh, there's, there's something else there with Kevin. I don't think he's the guy that's just going to go away and you won't hear from him. Kevin's going to dabble in, in a bunch of different things, and one of them just might be – uh, Brooklyn uh, basketball to some degree and maybe some bigger ticket items, uh, excuse the pun, down the road. Well, let's shift a little bit from Garnett. Obviously, you know we're going to go here now. Paul Pierce, you seemed actually a little confident that the Nets would be able to re-sign him uh, back in early April. But once again, a lot of things changed. Pierce left the team. Could you, admit, you know, possibly elaborate a little more on Pierce's departure? Yeah, I think a lot of it was based on the direction of the team combined with the finances. Uh, Paul 
was was certainly looking for a certain number to stay with the Nets, and the early discussions were not fruitful. Uh, the numbers that I heard thrown around were 10, 11 million a year, looking for a two-year, 20 to 22 million dollar deal. And while the Nets engaged in some early discussions, I think once the decision was made to trim some payroll and to go a bit younger, uh, they decided that Paul didn't necessarily fit into the future plan. So uh, you've got two schools of thought here. You trade away the three first-round draft picks, which they did with Boston, for the win-now mentality. And you say, well, as a GM – do I attempt to prolong this based on the fact that I have to show that I knew what I was doing when I made this deal, that this was going to be a two-, three-year process? Or do you cut your losses and say, hey, we went for it in the one year, lost to Miami in the conference semifinals, talking from Nets management perspective, and say it's time to move on. Uh, if, if this team is going to develop over time, uh, it may have to develop with a new personality, getting back to that core group of Williams, Lopez, and Johnson, guys that are locked in to big-money contracts, long-term deals, a team that won 49 games prior to the Pierce-Garnett acquisition and lacked some leadership and toughness. There's no doubt when they lost to Chicago two years ago in the first round of the playoffs, it was obvious that they – they had a void in that area. They tried to address it with Pearson, Garnett, and some other key signings. I think when Pearson and his agent looked at the market out there and realized that there were just not going to be big money offers, Pierce really struggled at times last year, but everything changed when he moved to the four spot. Jason Kidd made that decision. It was based really on the fact that Brooke Lopez went down with an injury, and they had, a, they had to adjust. And the adjustment was that Pierce would play up, would play at that power forward spot, and it revitalized his career. It's not to say that that's the spot he's going to be playing with the Washington Wizards. Um, I think the Nets looked at their big picture and decided that uh, the 20-some-odd million bucks that they thought it was going to cost was just not worth it, and they – they let him move on, and the money that he got obviously wasn't even close to that, although I like what Washington has done, and I think Paul picked a really good destination for him at this stage of his career. But for the Nets and Pierce, it turned out to be just a one-year relationship. I really hate to just throw you on the spot here, and this maybe may not be a question you really want to answer. So speaking from the Nets' perspective – could you then qualify that trade last June on draft day for Garnett and Pierce? Could you label that trade a failure for the Nets? Well, I think it depends on how you categorize it. Uh, they, in year two of playing in Brooklyn, had a very good year uh, building the brand. From a marketing standpoint, they feel like they made some headway within the market, that they became relevant and people were actually coming out and supporting the team, and Pierce and Garnett played a big role in that. From a basketball standpoint, they went for broke, and they lost in the second round of the playoffs. Now they're changing their, their whole philosophy. So 
it really depends on how you view it. If you view it that, hey, the only way to to categorize success is uh, go out, win a championship, or make the conference finals and feel like it was the next step in building something, uh, then sure, they they came up short. It's obvious. If their version of success is different, year two in a new market, trying to uh, get a foothold on on competing with the New York Knicks within the New York City area, then there was actual progress, and the team created a bit of a buzz. Uh, they sold out all their playoff games. They uh, had a much better vibe within the arena in year two compared to the curiosity of year one. What's the carryover? They have a new head coach in Lionel Hollins, old school, uh, no-nonsense, a guy that you know, some believe may have been the right choice a year ago prior to Kidd. Uh, he, he did a lot in Memphis, and he got a lot out of that team. The, the questions that the Nets are going to be dealing with from here on out will just be uh, whether it was all worth it. Uh, was it worth the splurge? Was it worth the money, the luxury tax? Was it worth it? From a financial standpoint, uh, they've, they've obviously taken a hit. I think they're trying now uh, to figure out fiscal responsibility and see if they can develop some young talent. And in the grand scheme, uh, we're not going to know until they get on the court whether or not uh, they're capable of doing that while also being a playoff team. Yeah, it's certainly interesting that you mentioned that. I think that the only choice that the Nets really have is to remain competitive and to you know try to develop some of their young talent in a competitive environment because they certainly can't be bad enough since the picks are going to be going uh, Boston's way. And I'm not sure I, if they still owe some other draft picks or some other teams because I know they've traded a lot of them away. But if they can remain a competitive team, you'll say 45 wins for the next three or four years, Developing younger players is actually easier. But you've mentioned uh, Lionel Hollins. Uh, what do you think of that hiring for the Nets? I liked it. Uh, Larry, they needed stability more than anything else. Uh, the Jason Kidd situation got ugly. Uh, there's no getting around it. When a coach served just one year, is successful, and ends up in a new city, uh, that means some some stuff happened, <laughs> and oftentimes things happen behind the scenes in professional sports, and we're not privy to it. We don't know about it. This was so public and over a two- to three-day period so explosive in that it felt like it came out of left field, and the, sh- the, the shifting – it was it was almost hard to wrap your brain around that, that this happened in the way that it did. So to come out of this with a credible figure in Lionel Holland, someone who sat out for a year and was wondering whether or not he was going to get another opportunity, coming off a really successful stint in Memphis where he did it his way, and it looked like there was a collision of philosophies with the Grizzlies that didn't work out in Lionel's favor. Uh, front office won out, uh, new ownership won out. I think Lionel brings uh, something a little different. And, you know, it's interesting. Darren Williams, who I've now seen quite a bit of uh, since that trade with Utah, only saw a little bit of him. You know, it's funny, guys that play in the Western Conference, 
uh, they, they can go under the radar if you live in the East. Yeah, you catch a game occasionally, a national TV game, or watching uh, your NBA feeds. But I can't say that I watch Darren Williams every night. Until you see a guy every day, you don't really know what he's all about. Uh, there are spectacular moments with Darren Williams, and then there are moments where uh, he just doesn't look like the same player. Who is the one that's going to unlock the consistency and get Darren back to that level? Is he physically capable of playing at that level? These are legitimate questions. The fact that Lionel Hollins is direct, uh, he he doesn't play games. There's no pretense. He's not going to go through an assistant coach to get his message across. He's not going to go to the media to try to uh, motivate a player. He's a look you in the eye and tell you exactly how he feels kind of guy. And at this stage of his career, that may be exactly what Darren Williams needs. And that also could be the key to the success of this team. Brooke Lopez being healthy, that's another aspect of it. But Darren Williams, can you get him back to an all-star level? And if you can, then now that's going to uh, hook into what you were talking about earlier, Larry, and that's whether or not they can be a, a 40-plus win team and, and be a playoff team over the next couple of years with Darren Williams at the age of, of 30. And, you know, on paper, should have another three, four excellent years in front of him. I don't really know how to truly follow up on that because, I mean, I think regardless, I think the Nets should be in the playoffs um, next year, even though they've taken this big step back because, quite frankly, the Eastern Conference is so bad and, you know, 38 wins is going to get you in, but you don't, you don't want to win 38. I think the Nets should still be hovering around that 45-win mark. They still have their core guys in place, really. I mean, Pierce and Garnett weren't supposed to be the core. They were supposed to... Uh, be you know the, the complimentary role players, and what ended up happening was, especially after Brook Lopez went down, was that they, he ended up becoming key cogs of the team. Especially Pierce there at the end, who played very well, I believe, in Toronto in that playoff series. But I mentioned Brook Lopez, and I want to get you know get this in before we get you out of here real soon. Where does he fit in all this? Uh, you know, he's a big man with foot problems. That's been an issue for it seems like everybody over seven feet. When he comes back, uh, where does he fit in this? Because the Nets were actually better without him last year than they were with him. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the one difference, obviously, will be the coaching philosophy and the system in place. Uh, under Jason Kidd's system, which was quick ball movement, get rid of the basketball, cut, move, uh, Brooke didn't seem to fit. Uh, he became a bit of a black hole, and as the Nets were going through their struggles and trying to find some chemistry, uh, Brooke was putting up points, and his stats were there, but they were not translating into wins, and the team was not gelling. Now with Lionel Hollins coming from Memphis, uh, Marc Gasol, one of the best big men in the NBA, who developed nicely under Lionel Hollins, the hope is that that'll be a stronger dynamic with, uh, with Brooke and with Lionel Hollins, and we'll see how much of the feature in the offense he will be and what the philosophy and the approach will be offensively more than anything else. Defensively, I thought Brooke improved a great deal on, on that end of the floor. Uh, he became more ferocious. I thought even though the team was not winning games, I thought Kevin Garnett was a very positive influence on Brooke, on uh, just the mentality that it takes 
every game, night in, night out, to compete in the NBA. And you say, well, isn't that a given? Not necessarily, as we know in this league. Brooke has been one of those guys that you look at his abilities and say it really comes easy to him, scoring the ball as a Uh, seven-footer. Offensively, he's very polished. The other aspects of his game, defense, rebounding, have been behind the offense. That's where Lionel Hollins uh, can can hopefully make a difference uh, in in just getting him to a point where uh, his game is balanced out. But as far as a role on this team, he he's going to play a prominent role, Larry. There's no doubt. Uh, he's he's a guy that they they still believe they can build around. The issue is is simply whether or not he can stay healthy and the foot problems. There's no getting around it. It's troubling. When you're dealing with seven-footers, there are success stories. Adrunas Ilgauskas is the one that comes to mind most recently who dealt with major foot problems. There were concerns that he would never be the same, and he ended up having a very productive NBA career even after all of those foot issues. Uh, But there are examples the other way, including Yao Ming, who just couldn't do it anymore, Uh, just just could not support that big body with, with his feet. Uh, so the hope from a Brooklyn perspective is that Brook fits more into the big Z category than than the Yao category. We're going to have to wrap this up. I can't believe we've been talking for this longer. But before I make, obviously, that point, um, I just want to you know, throw in there real quickly. I think that the, the Nets should have probably a little more success next year, to, particularly if they have maybe a four that can sort of stretch the floor because Garnett, he, he has the outside shot, but he can't get all the way out to the three-point line. No. So it was, it was a little congested for the Nets last year, and it definitely opened up a little spacing. But I have to ask this question because uh, that's what we do every week on Celtics Beat. We have our Celtics Beat fan question of the day, which comes from Dan. To get your question asked on future shows, log on to facebook.com slash Celtics Beat and pitch your question. Probably the least interesting question I'm going to ask you, uh, Ian. Dan wants to know if the Celtics should expect anything from Marcus Thornton this year. Uh, Well, Dan, the man can score. Uh, There's no denying that. Uh, Marcus Thornton is uh, an offensive-minded player who can provide instant offense off the bench. Where he fits into the grand scheme remains to be seen. Where Brad Stevens feels he's going to be most effective remains to be seen. Uh, But scoring is not an issue. He's aggressive. He is not shy, uh, which is a very nice way of saying he's got the green light in his own mind all the time. But he can provide a lift. He can provide a surge. Uh, He gambles a bit defensively. Uh, That that had stood out to me even prior to his days with the Nets, but going back to his New Orleans days and Sacramento days. Uh, but the, the man, the man can put points on the board. Uh, he he can be a piece. He can absolutely be a piece for the Celtics. Uh, I think for the Nets, they recognized that uh, they had to address the point guard slash uh, two guard area, and Marcus didn't fit into that spot. Jared Jack did. Uh, getting a player that could play alongside Darren Williams and could back up Darren Williams. When they lost Sean Livingston, uh, there was a pretty big void there, and they realized that Jared Jack meant more to this roster than, than Marcus Thornton did, so that's why the decision was made. 
Well, Ian Eagle, voice of the Brooklyn Nets on the Yes Network, also college basketball in the NFL on CBS. Can't believe I actually had you on for more than half an hour. It seems like me and you could pretty much go, uh, I don't want to say all day, but we could pretty much go for a long time. Uh, I think a marathon session uh, is, is probably in our future, Larry. Well, once again, uh, great to have you on. Uh, we, and we look forward to uh, just a few weeks. Uh, Patriots fans should be hearing plenty of you and Dan Fouts on the NFL and CBS in less than two months now. Yeah, I love going to Foxborough. So if, if that's the way the schedule falls, uh, I'll be excited about it. It's one of the best places to call the NFL. Uh, that crowd, uh, even as, as silly as it may sound, because uh, to most fans it's irrelevant, but to broadcasters I can tell you it's important. Just the broadcast location, uh, the way that the press box is set up for TV and radio, you are in the middle of the fray. Uh, you can reach out and touch the fans. Uh, to me, uh, that gives you an even better sense of what the in-stadium experience is like. And uh, I just love doing games there. Always have and looking forward to uh, hopefully a bunch of Patriots assignments over the course of the season. Hey, well, if you get the division, the, if you get that divisional playoff round, I hope you don't get hit with a snowball like Phil Simmons did. <laughs> Remember that back? Uh, I think that was the snowball game. He got whacked. Was. Yeah, he got whacked. It was. But, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a little quicker and a, a, a bit of a smaller target. All right, Ian. Well, thank you so much once again for joining us on Celtics Beat. All right, Larry. Talk to you soon, man. All right, Ian Eagle. Once again, great stuff. I'd love to have some follow-up points. we got to get right to our next guest who has been patiently waiting on the line, Jeff Goodman, ESPN Basketball Insider. Also, his work can appear on ESPN.com. Our interview with Jeff is brought to you by the world-renowned BeatsAndEats.net. Food, comedy, pop culture, and more. That's BeatsAndEats.net. Jeff, great to have you back on the show. Once again, it's been kind of a long time here. It has been a while, and, uh, you know, it's it's always fun coming on with you and talking hoops. I can't help but think the last time we had you on the show, uh, one of the big discussion points was Rajon Rondo. Now, when, he, when you were back on the show, I think it was mid-December of yep. 2013, Rondo was injured, but we were we talking about the future of the Celtics here. And, you know, I mean, I think I'm just going to sort of go ahead and, and play the clip from back in December. And, you know, we can sort of elaborate and just sort of go from there. Uh, studio, sure. if you can play clip number three. To think about, that's all. I, listen, I'm not the biggest Rondo fan. I never have been. Uh, just because, again, I think he, he over-dribbles. Uh, he's not a great shooter. I don't think he defends like he used to. He's a very good player when he wants to be, and he's not a leader. And that's going to be the key for this team is how do they, how do they react? How do these young guys react uh, when Rondo is on the team? How does Jordan Crawford react to, to playing a role, a more minimal role again? So now, I mean, <laughs> I hate to say it because like, I, I kind of – I mean, I, I kind of – I definitely agree with you. I've written more columns on Rondo than any columns that I've written in the three years that I've been the CLNS. And my argument basically been is you can't have Rondo as a 1-2-3 best player on a championship team. And that sort of defeats the purpose of giving him a max contract and the fact that you, if he can't be one of your three best players and you can't really pay him. So I'm going to give you the floor here and sort of you know defend those prior statements uh, that you made back in December and obviously defend yourself against uh, the blogosphere that's been sort of attacking you over the past few weeks. Listen, I, I love Rondo's ability. And I think that's part of the reason why I get frustrated by him is because – 
Uh, I feel like some people put him in the upper echelon of point guards, you know, top three, top, you know, you see DeMarcus Cousins saying he's the best point guard in the NBA. That's laughable. I mean, it's laughable. He, he's got great skills, but I just feel like, again, and I'll, I'll reiterate, I feel like uh, he's not a leader. He's one of the furthest things from a leader. Um, I have talked to some NBA players who have said they do not want to play with, with Rondo. Now, I know there's others on the flip side. They want to play with him. You know, Kendrick Perkins loves him. Well, they had a they had a connection here in Boston. Uh, KG and Pierce have said good things about him. Uh, Carmelo and Kobe have said good things about him. Well, part of it is look at Carmelo and Kobe's point guard situation. Yeah, I'd rather have Rondo there too. I'm not saying Rondo isn't better than the second half of the league point guard. I'm not saying he's not better than Raymond Felton or a, a 39-year-old or whatever he is, 40-year-old Steve Nash. What I'm saying is, He's not much better than Ty Lawson, if better. What I'm saying is he's not better than Chris Paul or a healthy Darren Williams or a healthy Derrick Rose or uh, Russell Westbrook or some of these other guys. And part of it stems from the intangibles. Part of it stems from the fact that I think he's flawed as a number one guy. And he can't shoot. And he doesn't guard, as I said, like he used to. Uh, You know, he, he relies on Avery Bradley for that now. And I think a lot of guys are like that when they come in the league. You know, you do anything to stay on the floor, and then when you become a star, you know, and there's a lot on Rondo when he's out on the floor offensively. So I understand the fact that he can't guard like he did when he came in the league. But uh, I feel like he's at many times turned into a mediocre defender who doesn't pressure the ball, who doesn't create havoc. And I felt like that was one of the biggest strengths that he brought to the table. Um, And, again, some NBA players, they love him. What I think it is is, too, the new age NBA is such, and I, I know all these kids because I cover them from AAU to college to all the way up. I mean, I've been at AAU tournaments this whole month, uh, and I'm heading out again tomorrow to Vegas. So these guys these days are different than the Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce era. They hang out with each other. They text each other. They tweet each other. They do all this stuff, and Rondo is not, really a part of that group now again does he have some friends yes but he is not connected to this era of of kids and players um like many others and and i think that hurts him because word gets around you know he's a loner uh and i think unfortunately again that that kind of hurts him within the the younger group of players you know he's tough to deal with and i think you know again you look at the fact that he didn't he didn't get along with Doc Rivers, and that's a that's a pretty good hit because Doc Rivers has got a pretty you know stellar reputation among the league in terms of dealing with people. And then you look back to he didn't he didn't get along with Tubby Smith, one of the highest character college coaches probably ever to come through. And it's like, well, hold on here, what's going on? So I. You know, he's he's a complex individual. He's complex on the court. He's complex off the court. Well, so it's it's very interesting to me that you mentioned all that because you're a very well connected guy. You know, you know these these players and these coaches. So you know the stuff off the court. Now, my issue with me with me has been on the court in the fact that I just don't think that you can have Rondo as an elite player. Uh, if you want to win a championship, because he has too many deficiencies in the critical areas. You mentioned how he doesn't shoot. I mean, I, I, Magic Johnson at the beginning of his career couldn't shoot. But what, what was uh, Rondo? 
at the end of the games, shies away from the basketball. If you're going to be a guy that has the basketball in your hands almost all the time, we're talking like the first 40 minutes of the game, and then it's at the end of the game, the last five minutes, he's passing it off to Pierce when he was when Pierce was here, and he's just running, he's just nowhere to be found. So he, he's that changes the entire offense for the team. You you run an offense for 88 percent of the game, and then you know the rest of the game. You're doing something else that completely ruins the flow. The fact that he can't hit free throws is crucial as well because the fact that he can't hit free throws means that he can't attack the basket. He can't get easy points on nights where, say, he doesn't have it. And that's yep. there's nothing wrong with that because plenty of Larry Bird went 7 for 22 plenty of times in his career. But he could still get, you know, do other things. He could rebound, get to he could pass, he could get yep. to the free yep. throw line, hit 90% yep. of his free throws and, you know, help help the team in many other different ways. If, if Rondo is, isn't checked in that night, he's not just, I mean, he's useless. In fact, he's actually a detriment to the team. So that's been my issue. I think Rondo is very, and you're right, Rondo is very good when he was on that 08 championship team as sort of that Swiss Army utility guy. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure. I, put, three hall, put three Hall of Famers around him. And he's terrific. He's terrific. It's just a facilitator and a young guy who is not expected to lead a team. And, and he can That's do, where he was ideal for that group. And he can do all these little things that, um, that really can't be done, like, say, rebound very effectively for a point guard. Yep. But as yep. you mentioned earlier, he played great defense. If you remember the sixth game of that championship series against the Lakers, he was <sighs> – all over the court. I think he had like six or seven steals, and they were legitimate steals, and he was just totally impacting the game. But the rumor is, I don't know if you've heard this yourself, or if you'd like to confirm that he wants, I think Cedric Maxwell was the first to report this, he wants a $100 million contract extension, basically saying that he's one of the one or two best players on a championship team. Now, I I applaud the confidence. You should certainly have that. And I applaud the fact that he wants the challenge of being one of the best players on a team, but the fact is he just isn't. Listen, you know, I'm with you. I'm with you. Would I pay him $20 million a year? Heck no. Kyrie Irving just got $20 million a year though, or, or, or thereabouts, right? Chandler Parsons just got 15 million a year. Uh, Gordon Hayward got in the neighborhood of 15 million a year. So it depends on the time and the circumstance I don't think, again, his value is a max contract guy, personally. But somebody's probably going to pay him that. Now, if you're Boston, are you going to pay him that? I, I would think Danny Ainge is going to try like heck to move him this year before he becomes a free agent, try to move him. Now your hands aren't tied to where you need a point guard in return. You know, you've got Marcus Smart. You know, Danny loves Phil Pressey. Phil Pressey's not a front, you know, front end point guard, and I love Phil too. It's a backup change of pace guy. But now you've got Marcus Smart. You can evaluate him here early on in the season. See if you, you know, even in practice, you can, you'll get to know what you have and whether Marcus Smart is a guy that you feel like can be a, a top half of the league point guard. And I think he can because it's funny. He does a lot of the things that Rondo doesn't. He's got all the intangibles. Now, they're both tough. They're both, they've got that toughness to them. But Marcus Smart is a guy that uh, I think can take people with him. I think he can be a leader. He's been a leader at every level. That's what we've all gushed about Marcus Smart since I first saw him in AU basketball is the kid just wins. He's just so tough. 
and all he cares about is winning. There's no flash to his game like Rondo, where it's look at me, I'm going to throw that, you know, I'm going to dribble for 10 or 15 seconds, and then I'm going to throw that behind-the-back bounce pass so everybody can look at me instead of throwing the simple one. Marcus Smart has gotten so much better in this floor game. Now, there's some similarities, too. They're both, you know, challenge shooters along with Avery Bradley. So can you play those three? And, and Evan Turner, by the way. All four of those guys are, are mediocre shooters right now and have been. Now, Marcus Smart, I think, will continue to get better because I think he'll work at it. Uh, not to say those other guys haven't because Avery's gotten so much better uh, shooting the basketball. I think he shot almost 40% from three uh, last year. If his shoulder's healthy, uh, I-, I love Avery as a third guard. Love him. But I-, I guess what I'm saying is now you've got somebody there. So you're not held to the fact that you've got to trade for a point guard. Uh, teams now – you know, there's not that, that leverage that can kind of hold on you. You know, when you are trading Rondo before, it had to be for an elite-level point guard, and nobody was going to give up an elite-level point guard for Rondo. They just weren't. There's a lot of teams that, that have no interest in, in trading for Rondo. Uh, there are some, obviously, that, that have interest. You've got to find those guys. I, I tweeted it months ago that I thought Denver was a great trade partner because I, I really believe, like, Ty Lawson is vastly underrated. Uh, not all that different from Rondo. And, and I think you can get something else from Denver. Yeah, I want to get back to Marcus Smart real quick. I just got a tweet, though, mentioning how Rondo's been the best player on a contending team. And I, I assume that the tweet that yeah. the person that sent this tweet was referring to the 2010 Celtics and the 2012 Celtics. Sure. That's true, but it just sort of reinforces the point that I brought up about how the team plays one way for 90, 88% of the game, and then they play a different way. Both those teams had atrocious fourth quarters in Game 7s against the Lakers and... Um, Miami Heat. So it just sort of reinforces that point. But I got to get back to Marcus Smart. Uh, you were a huge fan, of, not a huge fan, but you were a big fan of his when we talked to you in, in December. You said that he was, I believe you had your first tier as Wiggins, Parker, and Embiid back, I think, on the December 14th show. And then you mentioned a second tier. You had Marcus Smart in there. Do you think that Marcus Smart's ceiling is all star level, or is that just too high of expectations? I'm not sure he can ever be a top. The all-star level means you're one of the top five or six point guards in the league. I'm not sure he's ever going to crack that group. Uh, I think he can be that next tier. Um, And, again, this is a kid who's only been playing point guard for the better part of two seasons. He's going to continue to get better. He's a worker. He's big, strong. He won't back down from anybody. Uh, Again, is he going to be Rondo in terms of his court vision? No. Rondo's got pure – Point guard instincts. He sees things other guys don't. Uh, Marcus Smart doesn't have that, but he's continued to get better at it. But I just think he, he can be a leader. He can be a top 10-ish point guard in the league, which is what I think Rondo is. When you throw the whole package together, I think Rondo is somewhere around, I don't know, you, you can make a case he's somewhere from 6 to 10. And I think Smart can be in that group. Eventually. Is he there yet? No. Uh, but physically, he's a man. Mentally, uh, other than the, the, the Texas Tech incident in Lubbock, which we can go into, but I, I think that was more of a pride thing that had been building up because people had been calling him a flopper on Twitter, and I think these kids read it. And I think it had been one of those things that just built up, built up, built up. The guy said something to him in the stands, and he just lost it. And, uh, you know, he's a competitor, and, and you know, should he have done it? No, he did it. Um, but but prior to that, really, 
always the, the, the thing that you talk about Marcus Smart was, man, he's just, he's just a winner. He's just an intangible guy who brings people with him, brings their level up, um, and knows how to lead. I remember seeing a practice last year before the start of the season. You should see this guy in practice. He never stops. He is diving everywhere, uh, playing hard every possession. And the, the other thing was he was coaching the young kids. Like Travis Ford, their coach at Oklahoma State, didn't have to say a word. Marcus Smart was coaching that team that day. He was the coach. And, and that's where, again, Marcus Smart, is he ready for that now? No. But you know what? This is a young enough group that right now they're deferring to Rondo. Why? Because they have to. You know, he's won championships. He, he's the guy. So if, if he leaves, who becomes the leader? I think it would quickly uh, go to the point where it would be Marcus Smart. That's certainly, from a Celtics fan perspective, great to hear. But once you get to the NBA, I think that can change just due to the 82-game grind and the fact that Marcus Smart's going to be coming to a team that's probably going to be losing at least 50 games this year. Let's call it on a you know conservative number 48. So, I mean, how, I mean, eventually that can sort of wear at you, loss after loss after loss after Absolutely. loss. Absolutely. Marcus Smart, I mean, he wasn't losing many games at Oklahoma State, so it's really easy. They had a rough year, though, last year. They, they, they did, Larry, have kind of a rough year, so... He did go through some adversity that I think will help prepare him for losing a lot of games this year. All right, so we've, you know, we've had jumps in quite some time. I'd love to keep talking about Marcus Smart, but we've got to shift topics here. The Celtics just recently signed Evan Turner. I remember I talked to Quinn Buckner back in March, and, I, and this was right after they acquired Turner. And I remember just not being a fan of Turner then. I thought he was basically another Jeff Green. Doesn't really do anything all that well. It just has he's just really just sort of okay to good at everything, which I just doesn't. I just don't think that works well in the NBA. You really need one or two things that you can just master to have really a role in the NBA. So Evan Turner was a a, a big prospect. Uh, was it four? He was in that terrible draft, but it, I think there was a debate between him and John Wall, number one, number two. You really sold on uh, Evan Turner at all, or is it, it's a it's it just a good low risk high reward move by Danny Ainge? Yeah, you know what? He's accumulating pieces here, and he knows that Evan Turner's value at one point was pretty high. Uh, in fact, even last year he put up numbers for for a crappy Philadelphia team uh, for a while. So I, I think he knows the minimal risk with this one. Uh, maybe he can help turn Evan Turner into something again. Uh, he's a guy who does a little bit of everything and had a heck of a year. I mean, his final year at Ohio State, he was National Player of the Year. Uh, he's long. He can pass it. He can rebound. Not a great shooter. You know, I, I think he's a guy that, again, unfortunately they have too many. They have too many guys like Evan Turner. They have too many, uh, you know, mediocre to above average players right now on their roster. And I, I think – you know, when when you put all the draft picks with those players, Danny is just thinking, well, I've got some flexibility. I know Evan Turner can help us, uh, and if if he turns into what he was, you maybe package him with uh, you know a first round pick, and maybe you can get something for him down the road. I'm sure he's thinking that with everybody: Tyler Zeller, Marcus Thornton, you know, uh, you know Avery Bradley, bringing him back. Uh, Rondo, there's nobody on this team that is untouchable. We know that. There's nobody, not one player. Uh, you know, if, if you're Danny Ainge now, what you're doing is you're looking at your roster. You're saying, I'm going to try to get value up for some of these guys and then get players I really want for the future that are going to be front. You know, can you get, uh, you know, maybe not a number one for some of these guys, but can you get a legitimate, 
you know, number three guy. And then through the draft, you've got to pick up a number one somewhere. And I don't know who it's going to be. I don't think Marcus Smart can be a number one. I think he can be a number two or three. But how are you going to get that number one guy? You know, that was the whole, obviously, the thought process with Kevin Love, who I still don't think, by the way, can be a number one guy. Not for a championship team. For a team that gets in the playoffs, sure. Uh, although he's yet to do that in Minnesota. So I, I think through the draft, you, you almost hope that you have one more uh, dismal season this year, uh, get fortunate through the, through the draft lottery, and maybe pick up a guy that's coming out of the draft next year, you know, a Jaleel Okafor. He's probably going to be the number one pick. Uh, big kid, skilled. Uh, he'll go to Duke this year. This year's draft won't have the same hype that last year's did, but last year's draft really didn't hold up to the hype. I mean, listen, Andrew Wiggins going to be a good player. Jabari Parker, you know, Julius Randle, Marcus Smart, they're all good players, but nobody's a franchise changer, and I don't think we're going to see that next year other than the fact that maybe this kid Okafor could be because he's a true five-man who can really score in the post. Or also you could technically accumulate all these two, three guys in the draft and then hope that you can trade for that number one that guy that could come on the market in a few years. And right. you know, I was sort of thinking that myself. So LeBron went back to Cleveland, and they're going to they're, they're, they're be, I think, phenomenal next year. I mean, LeBron won 60 games pretty much every year when he was playing with Delonte West as his second-best player. People are saying now, oh, they're not going to be as good as Miami. I think whether they get Kevin Love or not, they're still the favorites in the East. They get Kevin Love, I think, and can pretty much just pen them down for a championship next what, two or three years. Right there. Let's, let's, let's face it. With, with or without Kevin Love, they're going to be competing for championships every single year when you have LeBron, Kyrie, and whoever else. Right, right. So my thought process was, I mean, I was all gung-ho for Kevin Love. Who wouldn't be? I think just personally, he just he would, he would look good in a Celtics jersey. If you could just name, like, one player in the league, like, who would look in a Celtics jersey? Kevin Love, right there. He just, I yep. see him in a Celtics jersey. But now with LeBron and Cleveland, they're going to be dominant for five years. Should I mean, should the Celtics now just pretty much be patient? Because even if they, you know, do the fireworks that Rick Grosbeck wants, it's not going to be enough to get over the hump. I mean, it's at best a conference finalist, at best. So should the Celtics maybe be patient? And I know the fans don't want to hear this, but now play this out for another three years. Be patient and, and be mediocre, you're saying, for the next three years and not, not – I mean, I think, you know, depending on what the trade is, you, you try to do it. If you can get a, you know, a guy, again, that can upgrade your, your, your roster, I don't think you sit tight. I, I think you've got to – again, you've got to explore all options for Rondo right away. And then as those other guys, you know, if a Kelly Olenek has a great year, you've you got to look at what you can get for a guy like Kelly Olenek and a first-round pick. Those are, the, those are the ways you can upgrade your roster. You've got these picks. Can you see what you can get for some of these pieces to turn them into what, what's more than a piece? And I'm trying to think of who, uh, you know, who's going to be on the market or who, you know, like, a, again, a good a – good, deal would have been last year, you know, again, you talked about Ashik and Chandler Parsons. You know, getting two guys like that that I think are certainly upgrades over whatever you have. Now, would you have traded Rondo for those guys? I'm not sure. I think at that point, again, you need a point guard in return. And number two, you know, you want full value for Rondo. That's obviously the goal here. But at some point, if you're Danny Ainge, you're going to have to realize you're not getting full value for Rondo. Nobody's giving it to you. Well, that's the problem. You know, that's the issue right now. 
I, I think that's entirely the case, and I think as we get closer and closer towards uh, his free agency, you're going to be pretty much – I think regardless, it's going to be uh, – the best you're going to be able to do is three quarters, uh, two dimes, and a nickel. Am I, is, that, is that correct for a dollar? Is my math all right there? Yeah. You just don't yeah. hope that you want to do a quarter and a bunch of spare change. So I, I think – Ainge is going to play this out. I also think, too, that Ainge also does want to see him build up his trade value if he does move him because right now this is the lowest his value was ever. He did not have a very ever good been. season last right. year. So it, te- it can technically only go up. So That's I- why you don't trade him right now. That's why you don't trade him. You wait till he's playing back-to-backs, and, and he's playing well. And I've said it. You know, you, you talk about you – have Brad Stevens talk about what a great leader he is, even if he's not. And and you try to just boost up his his value as much as you possibly can, and then you trade him, you know, after twenty five games or so, when you've had a better sense of what Marcus Smart is. Well, it could be tough to sell to the league and even the fans that what a great leader he is if the team's ten, fifteen games under five hundred on Christmas Day. But I got to get True. to this uh, before we let you get out of here. Celtics beat fan question of the day, which comes from Tim. To get your question asked, log on to facebook.com slash Celtics beat and pitch your question. Tim wants to know if uh, Tyler Zeller is capable of being a starting center in the NBA. Uh, I think he's better served coming off the bench. You know, I, I don't think he's going to beat out uh, Solinger. Could you play them together because you need Zeller's length? Uh, maybe, but Zeller's short arms too. Uh, I, I like Tyler. I like Cody as well. I think Tyler's a great running big guy. That's probably the biggest strength of his game. He can really get in the up and down the court. Uh, he can step out and make shots too. But you know, I think he's best served coming off the bench, as a lot of these guys are. I think Kelly Olynyk best served coming off the bench. Solinger's the one guy up front that I would say could start for a contending team. The other guys, I think, are, are, are again are reserves on playoff teams. Except possibly Marcus Smart sometime down the road. Yeah, no, no. Marcus Smart, I think, is a player. I think he's a player you can you can build around with. You know, is he going to be the guy you build around? No, but I think he's he's a core member of what you can build around in the future. All right, Jeff Goodman, basketball insider at ESPN and ESPN.com. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Goodman ESPN. That's at Goodman ESPN. Jeff, once again, thank you so much for taking your time to join Celtics Beat. No, thanks for having me, Larry. I appreciate it. All right, Jeff. Thank you once again for appearing on the show. Yet once again, we look forward to having you back on the show. And that is going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. We went a little over time. I'm sorry if we kept you there too long, although I know you enjoyed those two conversations that we had. No time for around the NBA in five. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Carlos Andres Mesa, Ostravex, and Steph Legrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore beat. That is Celtics underscore beat. And you can like Celtics beat on CLNS radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. We also have a Google plus page. Be sure to check that out. We'd like to thank our guests. I Eagle of the yes network and CBS sports and Jeff Goodman of ESPN and ESPN.com for our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, not to brag for myself, the executive producer, the co-host, the host of this week's show. Larry H. Russell. See you next Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Rich Conti, Dr. Andre Sellings, guest Peter Vesey. Can't wait for that show. Another edition of Celtics Beat, heard exclusively on CLNS Radio.